Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 26 minutes to nine, the time. Good morning. In the Middle East, a group of people known as the Houthis in Yemen have been using missiles and drones to attack ships that are passing through the Red Sea. The Houthi group say they're doing this because they want to stop people from supplying or doing business with Israel in response to its attacks on Gaza. Those attacks were obviously after the attacks on Israel by Hamas. In response to all of that, the US and the UK have launched rocket attacks on Houthi installations and say they'll continue to use force to ensure that global shipping routes are kept open. But overnight, the Houthis were able to hit an American ship with a missile. I understand that's the first time they've managed to hit a US ship in this way. All of this could have a huge impact on us. Firstly, if shipping costs go up, that will increase the price you pay for goods. But also, if more ships have to avoid the Red Sea and go around South Africa, there may be some opportunities for us. However, at the same time, as you know, Transnet's had huge problems with the port to a point where we've now, where it's now entering into a pri- public-private partnership with a pub, with a private company, an international company, at Pier 2 in Durban, the busiest part of the busiest harbour in the country. So then, what is causing all of this to happen and what will the consequences be? Tembisa Fakure is an expert in global governance. Uh, he will explain to us what is happening in the Red Sea area, who are the Houthis and why they are doing this. Timothy Walker is the Maritime Project Leader and Senior Researcher at the Institute for Security studies. He will look at the impact on shipping and global shipping. Unati Sonti is Executive Chair at the Maritime Business Chamber. We start then with Tembisa Fakuda. Tembisa, good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We need to start at the beginning of this, please. Back in 2015, Saudi Arabia started bombing Houthi positions in Yemen. Who are the Houthis and why did Saudi Arabia do that? Well, the Houthis uh, is a tribe in Yemen and consist of a Shia sect, as you know in Islam there are two sects, which is Sunni and Shia. So the Houthis, most of them are of the what is known as the, the Zayid uh, sect of the Shia Islam, hence their relationship with Iran. So that's where they come from, but their real name of course is Ansar al-Islam, in other words it's, a, it's a, Ansar Allah the support of, of, of Allah or supporters of Allah. So the Houthi name is not the official name, but is, is the name of the tribe from which they come. So they came into prominence in Yemen, and they've been around for a very long time, but they came into prominence after the um, the uh, toppling of the government of uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who used to be the president of Yemen following the Arab Spring in 2011. And they've since waged the war against various uh, factions, um, government factions, or those that were trying to install the previous status quo in in Yemen, including uh, Saudi Arabia, which came and tried to push back and install their own preferred government in 2014, and the war started in 2015. And that war was a coalition led by Saudi Arabia, including the GCC countries. And that's that's where the Houthi come from. But you need to remember the importance of Yemen in Arab history. Most Arabs come from Yemen. Yemen is known as the homeland of Arabs. And the reason why Saudi Arabia, over and above its political ambitions, got involved in uh, Yemen in 2015 was mainly because they wanted to keep the homeland, in inverted commas, clear of the Shia influence and that's where iran comes in because iran is accused not only by saudi arabia but all the sunni 
or most Sunni countries in the region as uh, responsible for Shia expansionism. And Saudi Arabia is, or has regarded itself, or still, still regards itself as the custodian of the Sunni Islam. So their main purpose is to stop the spread of the Shia Islam in the region. So the Houthi are now playing that role, and they've since, of course, established strong relationship with Iran. And uh, we see what they're doing at the moment in the Red Sea, the, Ar- the Arabian Sea, Babel Mandeb, and the proper, uh, you know, strait um, uh, within, between, at least between the African continent and, and the Arabian uh, continent. So that's, I hope it helps in terms of mm. giving a bit of understanding of who they are. No, 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 that really does get us to it. Is Egypt part of all of this as well? Well, Egypt is part of it because it's the one of the powerful countries in those waters, the troubled waters of the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, but Egypt, of course, at the moment is not showing any signs, at least directly, but without doubt being the recipient of the largest um, donations and funding from the Americans, they are certainly involved in all um manner in terms of them spying in inverted commas or providing intelligence to the United States and the uh, European countries. So they are very much involved in the relationship that Egypt enjoys with Saudi Arabia means therefore that anything that has got to do with the Houthis who have been fighting and humiliated both Saudi Arabia and Arab United Arab Emirates uh, they will be involved uh, in that regard. So, yes, they are certainly uh, involved, uh, even though, of course, not obviously, at least in this current conflict of the Houthi targeting ships destined to uh, the Mediterranean and Israel. Okay, so then when the Houthis say that they're targeting these ships because it's about Israel's actions in Gaza, obviously that's a strong argument. But then Iran is also backing the Houthis, and they obviously... Um, don't like the United States either. So, is it? I mean, how do we assess the sort of motivation for these attacks? Iran supports both Islamic Jihad and Hamas uh, openly, of course, in um, in this current uh, genocide that's unfolding with, before our eyes. So that's the first point. And Iran also works very closely with Hassan Nasrallah, who is the head of Hezbollah in Lebanon. And throughout the conflict between the Saudi-led coalition that involved Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, Iran was supporting the Houthis. So at the moment, Iran has made it very clear that it supports the uh, both Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the current genocide in Gaza, and as a result, they've, of course, triggered both their affiliates in Lebanon. They've triggered the actions of Hassan Astralla through Hezbollah to continue hitting uh, or targeting the uh, targets of Israel in the northern part of Israel. In Yemen, they've also triggered their own uh, affiliate in this uh, regard is the Houthi, who are now targeting ships destined to Israel. So Iran is now playing a very, very important role, which, of course, now makes a lot of sense uh, for some of us who criticize um, uh, Saudi Arabia in the past, Mm -hmm. not to say I'm supporting it now, but Saudi Arabia used to accuse Iran of this sheer expansionism with an intention of creating a sort of 
um, a, a, a security powerhouse which will then be remotely controlled by Iran. And now we see that uh, the Houthis are basically playing that role and are controlled um, by Iran. And in in, uh, in Lebanon, we see the um, we see the Hezbollah doing the same. So that's that's what the role of Iran is at the moment. It's a very very important role, growing on a daily basis, uh, and it's likely to change the geopolitical realities when the dust settles in Gaza. And very quickly, if you can, the U.S. and the U.K. now attacking the Houthi positions. Is that going to stop the attacks? No, it's not going to stop the attacks. I think it's only going to um, irritate the Houthis even more. You are likely to see the amplification of um, their targeting of this ship. And by the way, you know, you must remember, we still have the Al-Shabaab uh, that has been causing havoc in in the Red Sea, uh, particularly in Babul Mandeb. So those waters are very, very uh, dangerous uh, and uh, unsafe. I mean, Al-Shabaab is not gone yet, and they still operate uh, using their pirates uh, to hijack and redirect the route of those ships that are using the Red Sea. And now you have the Houthis who are doing the same. So I don't think this will step anytime soon. Tambisa Fakuda, thank you. A global governance analyst really do appreciate the time. Very complicated a cast of characters, different elements to all of this. 17 minutes now to nine. The time of this AFM, your mediated conversation on the attacks in the Red Sea continues. Timothy Walker is a maritime project leader and senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies. Timothy, good morning. Thank you for your time. Morning, Stephen. Morning to your listeners. Has something like this happened to world shipping before, where ships travelling through a very well-travelled route, a key route like the Red Sea, are targeted by groups in this way, drones and missiles? Not drones and missiles. There's a very innovative approach being adopted by the Houthis against shipping um, using very low-cost, quite simple technology. Um, the fascinating thing of just the the, uh, the asymmetry here we're seeing of, of, of millions of dollars worth of very expensive naval equipment um, sort of trying to target uh, something which is not that costly or, or, um, or complicated really to have manufactured. We've seen often the attempts in the past of coastal countries to apply pressure on shipping and countries which rely on shipping. Um, and, and, and to be honest, that is most of the world. Most things that we are seeing attacked uh, in cargo vessels, um, or if, if oil tankers to be attacked, this is being taken from one overseas market to another. Manufacturing takes place all over the world. So so everybody, in a way, is affected when uh, shipping gets attacked. And the Red Sea is one of the most important ones. Um, certain straits in the past have come under pressure in this area, often actually um, uh, with Israel in mind. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, um, Egypt and Saudi Arabia attempted to close uh, the northern part of the Red Sea to Israeli ships, uh, which was then stopped with, with the Egypt-Israel Treaty in the 70s. So in terms of coastal countries, trying to pressure shipping and, and countries relying on shipping to then have a sort of a strategic or political impact. Uh, that is something we've seen quite often throughout history. But this is, like I say, quite quite innovative and it makes it a lot more wicked and complicated to try and resolve as well. I would presume most ships can't defend themselves. Maybe some can, but very few can. They rely on the navies of certain countries. And I suppose for much of the last sort of 50, 60 years, 
It's really been the American Navy that's done this. They've made, I think they do what they're called freedom of navigation cruises. They go through certain areas just to make sure it's safe for global shipping. Is that sort of how, how it's worked? That, 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 that is a very um, prominent way of looking at it, uh, indeed. The um, sort of anchoring principle, as it were, of, of a lot of international trade, and, and in fact, international law as well, has been uh, the freedom of navigation and innocent passage. So the, um, the, the right of any, any ship, any people on board that ship, to go through the waters of another country or an area without having to be afraid or suffer the risk of being attacked or or intercepted um it's something which like i say is actually fundamental to trade uh, and and the americans are very keen on that principle um they operate several forces around the world who one of their missions is to safeguard that principle the reason they feel that's the case is that increasingly with the new technologies which the houthi are employing the coastal countries, in the name often of what they regard as their own security, but sometimes, as we've seen here is, is, uh, with the Red Sea, is not necessarily uh, for the greater good, um, will try to intercept vessels or try to order them to do things uh, while they're going about their, their, their business. Disruptions and interceptions in that way. They don't have a big cost on, on shipping, like uh, you said in the beginning. Ultimately, that filters down to us because what they're carrying is not always war goods or or things which are used for military operations <laughs> in this case they're carrying toys for christmas or they're carrying things for valentine's day or they're carrying things for new year celebrations um just to give some examples of some of those peaks in shipping where where disruptions really sort of hit the shelves as it were but things like fuel petrol and, and as we well know the increase in the petrol price here in south africa it doesn't just mean the cars are more expensive to fuel. It means food prices go up because transportation gets more complicated. So shipping is obviously by its nature, it's an international business. I mean, you know, maybe the first mm. global business ever. Can someone see this ship passing through the Red Sea is an American ship or an Israeli ship um, and therefore should be targeted? Or do they all look the same? Or they're all... I mean, there was a, a time, I don't know why, when many ships were registered, I think, in Liberia for some reason. Well, many of them still are. In fact, I think the Liberian registry is by tonnage the largest in the world, uh, followed by uh, Panama. Uh, what's been a, a real benefit for shipping over the last, uh, well, basically since the Second World War, has been what's called uh, open registries. But, but the idea that if you can register a ship under another country's flag, it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the country of the owner or the primary route it's going to follow and if you fly that flag you're obviously going to obey that country's laws at sea but that country is also not going to necessarily charge you very much money to use that flag every ship at sea above a certain tonnage has to have a, a flag it has to obey the laws of a country um, ships are basically what they sometimes get called islands of sovereignty moving around the oceans because there is no law per se, on the high seas, what the law over ships has to be a particular country. So some countries like Liberia and Panama have have have, have exploited uh, an interest in having cheaper shipping to make their flags more accessible. That obviously means that if a Liberian flag ship gets attacked, there is no Liberian Navy necessarily to, um, to intervene or to try and help, which is where the United States comes in and countries like France or the United Kingdom and increasingly um, countries like Japan and South Korea as well.
Wind ships now may have to avoid the Red Sea and go around. They literally go around South mm. Africa. What does that do to timelines and costs? It adds uh, anything up to about uh, seven to ten days for most vessels who want to now take the route around the Cape of Good Hope. It adds fuel costs as well because obviously it's a greater distance too. And there's a pressure then on fueling, as it, imagine like NGEN one stops or something or any petrol station. The price of fuel in South Africa is a lot more expensive than places like Singapore, which is obviously a, a much bigger shipping hub, or other places around the world where the ships are trying to reach from uh, one destination to another. So ships who want to put into South Africa are looking at a small uh, sort of a disincentive of the cost of fuel is a lot more than it would be elsewhere in the world. But they don't really have much in the way of a choice. The insurance rates for insuring a ship, a cargo ship, for instance, is a lot more than an oil tanker. So oil tankers and many vessels are actually still plying the trade through the Red Sea and the Houthis are not targeting them. The claim that they are targeting Israeli vessels, they are looking for links or Israeli linked vessels. But the, the kind of mechanism which governs shipping, uh, in, in, like say flags from Liberia, owners uh, distributed all over the world. It's a very, very murky system. It's not something you can just definitely put a pin in and say that is a, um, a ship which 100% belongs to one country or if we target it, and, uh, and that seems to be happening, if we target it, it will have that effect on that country. What's clearly happening is that um, a bit like you were saying about the, uh, the previous uh, respondent, the Houthis attacks, uh, the attacks on the Houthis are, are more irritating them. The Houthi attacks have, have just sort of more or less irritated Israel. They're not actually stopping what they're doing in Gaza. But what it does do is it puts pressure on all the countries around the world who want the trade to get cheaper and continue to um, to try and pressure Israel. But it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that mm. the Houthis are attacking because they want to uh, stop what's happening in Israel. I think there's a domestic issue when it comes to what the Houthis are trying in Yemen, which also has a, an important role in, in what's going on. Timothy Walkup, thank you. Maritime Project Leader and Senior Researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in a moment. Unati Sonte, the Executive Chair of the Maritime Business Chamber. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Continue mediated conversation around the attacks by the Houthi people on shipping in the Red Sea and the impact on you. Unati Sonte is Executive Chair at the Maritime Business Chamber. Unati, good morning. Thank you for your time. Good morning, good morning, Stephen, and thank you, thank you, the listeners. I've seen some maps online that show a large number of ships sort of moving away from the Red Sea, coming around southern Africa. Are you seeing that? Are those volumes up significantly? Yes, uh, we we are seeing that. Looking at the the, the marine the marine traffic uh, app that shows, you know, the the number of vessels. In fact. What you see as well within the maps and the marine traffic would be that would be daily movement. So there are ships that would be coming to port, and there are ships that would obviously be passing by on a daily basis, whether we capture them or not. Um, are many stopping in Cape Town or Durban? And I'm going to come to the problems of those harbours in a moment. But I'd imagine most of them would probably just sort of sail for longer and get there as quickly as they can, because time really matters in this business. Yes, while time really matters, uh, there are also other, you know, important uh, uh, parts that, that that feature into this. One would be um, how how much cargo can you be able to carry, 
uh, at the same time, what is then available within the route to be able to assist you to carry more uh, whilst you travel light in, 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 towards your, your, your final destination. That then would bring the point that the previous speaker had, had brought in with regards to refueling. So what you would do is when you go around, when you plan your route, there are two things that you would do. It's either you would load more in terms of the, the, the cargo, the containers, or whatever that you're transporting towards your destination, uh, knowing that somewhere along you know, the, the sea route you would be able to refuel. And then the second part would be you, 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 you travel. So you, you, well, first, the first one is when you put more, it means you are traveling light on fuel. But the second one, if there is no uh, uh, place where you would be able to refuel, what then you would do is you would travel with li- lighter cargo in terms of the, the, the containers that you, have, you are, and then you put more fuel. Um, and the problems that we've had with Transnet, uh, particularly at Durban, is that stopping people from stop from from stopping here? I mean, if that if we didn't have those problems, would more ships be stopping? Look, yes, it does. It it does deter some uh, some some shipping companies from from coming. Uh, but then you would understand uh, at the present moment, uh, you know, the port of Durban remains one of the largest. Uh, ports in, 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 in Africa, especially in the, in the, in the sub-Saharan, uh, then you are obviously, you know, uh, uh, whatever that you would do, you would rather wait uh, outside the port and encourage for you to be able to go in because you calculate in terms of because if, if Deben would be your desired port of entry and where you would be able to discharge all your cargo, you would obviously wait, hence you find that with the recent uh, delays and congestions that has been happening in Durban, you'll find companies like Pepco because they use, you know, Durban as, as their major port. They were willing to wait since November with, uh, you know, goods that costing about 700 million friends. Um, I suppose the other question then becomes, you know, uh, could there be some sort of opportunity here? If the tra- are the Transnet facilities beginning to actually work better at our ports? I've seen at least one container company suggesting there has been an improvement. Look, there has been an improvement. I think, I think since the advent uh, where the president had launched, you know, sort of a, 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 pro- a program that would look at the agency of moving things. And I think also Transnet uh, 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 Master Port Authority, together with the Transnet Group as well, uh, have worked on the strategy around that. Hence, you hear as well for ports like Port of Durban and Port of Richards Bay, where now even Transnet has gone out looking for international, you know, advisors to assist them on how do they turn around things at, 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 those, at, at those parts. But that, that, that also doesn't take away the fact that uh, the key to, to congestion outside of where the issues would always be the understanding on equipment and maintenance. And if you do not address that, you would always remain with the same you know, challenge, whether you do a, a, an interim program to address the issue. But if you don't, do, if you don't address this tool, you're out. Um, could there be a longer-term opportunity here or not? I mean, if the situation in the Red Sea gets worse, or it lasts for a long time, and Transnet does improve and there's more space at our ports, could there be some opportunity here? Or could shipping goods here become cheaper just because more people are coming our way? 
Yes, def- definitely there is a great opportunity. Remember, this is now the second crisis that has happened that is around the Red Sea in the recent years. Remember, we had Evergreen that was stuck there in the middle of, 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 of the Suez Canal. Uh, then that opened up an opportunity for South Africa. But what, uh, what also opened an opportunity, not only just for ports, it's an opportunity for offshore bankers. This is where now vessels do not even have to go inside the port for them. Now, this, this, in this way, they would avoid, you know, uh, all the delays of the waiting times. They would just be able to be refueled and serviced with all the other auxiliary services that accompany the bankering services, of which the, currently that uh, offshore bankering uh, station is currently on hold with the challenge where SARS had detained the vessels that were offering such services. Unati Sonti, thank you very much indeed. Executive Chair at the Maritime Business Chamber, really, really do appreciate the time this morning. My thanks also to Timothy Walker, Maritime Project Leader and Senior Researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, and Tembisa Fakude, an analyst on global governance, just to explain the situation around the Red Sea.